Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We should expect people from all countries as they hear and trust in Christ to respond to the call of Christ when they hear it. Um, I bring that up today because today we are going to be talking about Samuel Morris. Um, He's unlike any of the other missionaries we've talked about thus far. He didn't grow up in a Christian family. In fact, he didn't really even spend very much time with his family growing up. He was practically orphaned. Uh, He did not hear the gospel until much later in his life, and he was not born in America. He was not born in Britain, but he was born in the jungles of Liberia and Western Africa. One movie about his life has the app title, which I put up here on the slide, Samuel Morris, African Missionary to North America. Now, before we dive into Samuel Morris' story uh, completely, I wanted to talk a little bit, very briefly, about miracles, which is not a brief and easy topic to talk about. There's a lot to be said about it. This is not comprehensive. But I wanted to kind of bring up a few points about miracles, because in Samuel Morris' story, there are some miraculous events in his telling. Uh, so number one, we know that God is fully capable of performing miracles, uh, we know from the Bible, I mean, how many countless stories. We, that one should not be in question. God is capable of performing miracles. Number two, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the early church, God gave the spiritual gift of miracles to certain Christians, especially to the apostles. Uh, number three, we see that that miraculous gift, that gift of miracles in the early church was designed to establish the authority of the apostles, and it was to further the gospel as the canon of scripture was being completed. So there was no Bible at the time. And so as the Bible was being written, this was establishing the authority of the, the apostles. Um, and we see that most miraculous events were, were directly tied to something like that. Number four, our church would hold to the cessationist view of the miraculous gifts, which means as the canon of scripture was beginning to close, the necessity of these gifts went away. Um, and if you read through Acts, it's actually interesting. You notice that even in the book of Acts, the miraculous gifts start to decrease as the book of Acts continues, which may be a sign that those gifts were slowly passing away. Um, and we know experientially that even those who claim to have the gift of miracles don't look anything like what we see in the New Testament as far as success and scope of being able to perform miracles. So then number five, um, the gift of miracles we believe has, is no longer present, but Um, like we said, God can still perform miracles. We do know experientially that God does not often choose to intervene in supernatural, miraculous ways in our lives, Um, but he he still could potentially. Um, And the reason I bring all this up, that's brief, but the reason I bring it up is because I'm going to go ahead and tell Samuel Morris' story as he tells it, which means I'm leaving the miracles in there because he has lots of miracles in there. Um, I'm not going to necessarily comment on the veracity of those miracles. Maybe a good opportunity to discuss things um, amongst your family or with the elders. Uh, but I do want to tell the story as, as he told it. I'm actually almost completely talking from this biography here. It's by Lindley Baldwin, um, who was kind of a close contact with Samuel Morris. Um, so I'm going to be mostly talking from this biography, very short biography. Um, so I will say, though, that many people draw great encouragement from Samuel Morris's life. And I think a lot of people draw encouragement from these miraculous events that they see. And I would say that there's a lot more to be encouraged by than just that. Um, I think there's something in us that gets real excited when we see you know, miracles happening in the late 1800s, like God is real. Um, and I would say that you know, we just have to open our Bible to know, hey, God is a mirac- does miracles. You know, it's all throughout the Bible. But this story is a great story of God's providence, see how God's providence works through Samuel Morris's life. And I'm hoping that it's going to be an encouragement in many ways for you. Um, so that being said, let's go ahead and jump in. 
So we have, we're in Western Africa, Liberia area, it's not technically Liberia, but Western Africa, in the jungles, a young boy is born and his name is Kabu. Later on in his life, he would change his name to Samuel Morse, but he was born Kabu, the son of a chieftain in a tribe, a crew tribe. Crew was like an ethnic group. Uh, he was born to a chieftain. So you would imagine, you know, living in the lap of luxury, the son of a king. Not so for Samuel Morris, because in that region, there was a custom that if a tribe was defeated in war, they would have to, the defeated tribe would have to give their oldest son as like a pawn to the winning tribe until they could pay out war debts. And so, so that, this happened to Samuel Morris three different times. His father had lost a battle three different times. He was sent in pawn three times. The first time, he was too young to remember. The second time was so brutal, he didn't even talk about it even later in his life. And the third time is when we're going to pick up our story. Uh, Samuel Morris was sent as pawn when he was around 15 years old. His father lost a battle. And this time it was to a particularly harsh uh, rival chieftain. His father tried to buy back you know, Samuel's freedom, or Kabu's freedom, he uh, brought pretty much everything that he could to the chieftain, said, here's what I've got, can you free my son? The chieftain said, that's not enough, you're going to have to give me more. So his father went back to their tribe and again, just found everything he could find of value. Bearing in mind that they had just lost a war, so all the ransacking and pillaging that happens with the war has happened, so they don't have a whole lot uh, of free stuff to give. But once again, Kabu's father brought everything he could, and once again, the chieftain said, you still haven't brought enough. You're going to have to bring, come back and bring more before I'll release your son. And then his father never came back. Uh, so after a while, the evil chieftain decided, hey, if his father's not going to come back, we're going to have to do something. So what they would do is they would daily beat Samuel Morris, they would torture him, and they would have a slave watch, and then the slave would watch the tortures and then go back to Kabu's father and report what had happened. Now, these beatings were pretty rough. They would have this thorn that they would whip Kabu with, and the thorn had a poison on it, so that as it dug into his flesh and ripped up his flesh, it would also insert this poison into his bloodstream, which would cause a fever, would cause, make his whole body feel like it was on fire. He would continue to be beaten daily, and eventually he got so weak that he couldn't stand, and so the evil tribe would put up a cross tree so that they could shackle him, prop him up, and then they could continue to beat him every day. Uh, he'd lost a lot of blood. He had a fever. He was incredibly weak. Finally, though, even despite all this, Kabu's father never returned again. And so eventually, the evil uh, chieftain said, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the evil chieftain said, you know, there's no reason for us to have this guy around anymore. We're just going to execute him. So right before he executed him, they gave him one final beating. And on that day is where our first miraculous event in Samuel Morris's account happens. So they were getting ready. They propped him up on the tree. Uh, they were getting ready to beat him. And then the book says, a great light, like a flash of lightning, broke over him. The light blinded all about him. An audible voice that seemed to come from above commanded him to rise and flee. Miraculously, he had the energy to get up and run. Remember, he's exhausted, weak. He was able to get up and run. He ran into the jungle uh, was pursued by the other tribe, but he was able to hide in the hollow of a tree during the day. And then at night, he was able to leave and wander further in the jungle. I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Sorry. <clears throat> so, he's hiding in the hollow tree. He escapes during the night. Now, bear in mind, this is a jungle. This isn't a, there aren't trails here. This isn't a hiking trail. This is just rough jungle. Very difficult to walk at night. Um, on top of that, wild animals, snakes, um, he had no weapon to defend himself, but what's even worse, he didn't even have a destination. You know, he couldn't go back to his home tribe. If he went back there, he would be found very quickly. 
So he had nowhere where to, that he knew where to go. And then at that time, the light that had rescued him shined again for him, and he followed that light for several days through the jungle. As he followed that light, uh, he came upon a settlement, and there was a crew boy working in the field in that settlement, and he asked him if he was a slave. You know, this area, there were a lot of slave, lots of slavery, um, lots of slave traders, uh, and the boy said, no, I'm not a slave, and Kabu had happened upon a group of slave liberators, not a group of slave traders. He had happened upon the city of Monrovia, which was the capital of Liberia. So Liberia was an American colony set up. It actually was set up by freed slaves. The Americans sent a bunch of freed slaves over to Liberia to start a colony and quickly gained its independence. But uh, it was established like that. Now there were lots of missions, um, lots of Christian influence there. Now bear in mind, there were thousands of tribes in that area, um, in that jungle that he could have happened upon. Many just as vicious as the one he left. Many, like I said, slave trade. And so the fact that he came to Monrovia, of all places, is, is another kind of miraculous thing that happened for him. Because um, like I said, there was a mission there, and that mission took him in. While at the mission, uh, he saw that crew boy that he had met in the jungle, uh, on that field. He saw him, he kind of roomed with him. He saw him kneeling and lifting his head to heaven and speaking kind of to himself. And Kabu said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm praying to God. He said, well, who is your God? And the, Kabu boy, or the crew boy said, um, he's my father. This was Kabu's first interaction, first time he'd ever heard of the one true God. Um, later on that, that Sunday, uh, they went to a church service, and the woman who was speaking there through an interpreter was talking about Saul's conversion. And she was talking about how the great light shined and a voice was heard from heaven. And Samuel Morris immediately jumped up in the middle of the service and said, I know this voice and I know this light. I've seen this before. Um, now, he wasn't saved at this point, but this was his first time that he was starting to recognize that maybe there is a God. Maybe, that, maybe um, I need to pay attention here. There was a woman named Miss Knowles, and she was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. She taught him all about Christ. Um, little by little, he learned the beautiful story of Jesus' birth in a manger, his ministry to the humble, the sinful, and the diseased, his atoning death and resurrection. Kabu readily accepted this newfound savior of souls as the same unknown God who had previously saved his body. And over time, he finally came to faith in Christ. He struggled a lot with, like, with feelings of insufficiency, and so it took him a few months before he finally accepted Christ, but he did accept Christ. And from that point forward, he always referred to God as my father, which I think is kind of significant. Because remember, Samuel Morris' own earthly father tried every human means necessary to save his son from this evil tribe, and he couldn't. He was unable to do so. And yet his heavenly father was able to do so. He was able to save his physical body, and also he was able to save him spiritually. So I think there was some significance in him calling him my father. He recognized that God was, was taking care of him as, as a father would, as maybe the father that he didn't have. Although his father was loving, he was unable to save him. Samuel, uh, Kabu was baptized, and he was, it was at this time that I don't have to keep correcting myself because he was changed his name to Samuel Morris, so now I can just keep calling him Samuel Morris. Um, he uh, was changed his name to Samuel Morris, which was kind of his grandfather in the faith. Miss Knowles was brought to faith by Samuel Morris, and so she suggested that he change his name to Samuel Morris. He viewed it kind of like a Saul to Paul type thing. He wanted to change his name when he became a, a Christian. From this point forward, his life was very different. He was found often praying in the quarters. Um, in fact, a lot of the other boys that were sleeping with him eventually ended up complaining. They said, you've got to either 
leave, live somewhere else, or go pray somewhere else because you're keeping us up at all hours of the night. And so Sam and Morse would go out into the jungles and he would pray. He also had a strong desire to share the gospel with his crew brethren. He wanted to go back into the jungles and, and teach them what he had learned. He also had a very strong desire to learn more. The book says he came so often to, the, to visit the missionaries and asked so many hard questions about the Spirit that one was finally compelled to confess, I have told you everything that I know about the Holy Ghost. But he persisted, who told you about what you know about the Holy Ghost? And she replied that she owed most of her understanding of this subject to Stephen Merritt, who was the home secretary to Bishop William Taylor. Samuel Morris then asked, where is Stephen Merritt? And the missionary replied, in New York. Samuel Morris promptly declared, I will go to see him. And he actually literally did. He, did, I don't know if he realized that there was a huge ocean between uh, Liberia and New York, but he immediately went to the coast and found a captain. He said, you're supposed to take me to New York. Of course, the captain's like, no, I'm not going to take you to New York. Went back to his ship. But Samuel Morris slept on the coast right there um, by, the, by where that boat was. And the next morning when the captain saw him still sitting out there, he went to him and he's like, hey, two of my men just deserted the camp last night. I'm short hands. If you want to come along with us, I'll take you to New York. So he was able to get aboard a vessel headed to New York. Uh, but this vessel actually wasn't headed directly to New York. This captain was a trader. Um, so he, he wanted to go all up and down the African coastline to get as much as he could before heading back to New York. So he was on this boat for quite a long time. This was kind of his first mission field, um, as it were. And it was a very needed mission field. This crew, your typical group of sailors, like you would expect, all the stories would hold true. It was a very motley group. Uh, the book says they were come from all four quarters of the globe, um, and Sammy was the only one of his race aboard the ship, and the whole crew resented his presence and began to plan to do away with him. Blows and abuses were raining down on his head from all sides. So once again, he's getting beat. Um, beaten while he's on this boat, which he's now gotten used to. Um, he would often pray to God just to help to sustain him through that. The ship's captain, as you can imagine, was also just this dictator. Everybody lived in dread of him. Uh, he's, and uh, Sammy Morris kind of worked directly with the ship's captain. He was the cabin boy. Um, would often get beaten by the ship's captain, especially the captain would be drunk a lot and would beat him. And he would always just pray. And the captain was kind of annoyed by this praying, but he had some level of religious background, and so he, he knew what he was doing, but he thought, you know, this guy's kind of annoying. Uh, one day, so they, they had a lot of trouble with the boat, and there's a lot, of, a lot of story that I'm skipping over with the time he was on the boat, but they had some trouble with the boat, but they finally were able to fix it, and they were headed across the coast to, to, um, to New York. There was a big celebration. The captain issued out an extra ration of rum to all the crew, which was a bad idea. Um, a violent fight broke out amongst the crew, and uh, there was a racist, uh, very racist Malaysian man who was often bragging about how he was going to kill Samuel Morris at some point. And during this fight, they're all fighting and actually killing each other, and Samuel Morris runs out in the middle of the fight in between the Malaysian man and someone else he was going to attack, and he says, don't kill, don't kill. And the racist Malaysian's like, all right, this is my opportunity to kill you. And so he, as he went toward him with the knife, Samuel Morris began to pray, and the Malaysian man just stopped in his tracks. He's like, I, I, he just didn't want to kill him. I, we don't know exactly what was going through his mind. He didn't kill Samuel Morris, and the fight kind of stopped. The captain comes running out with his guns blazing, getting ready to see, you know, he's going to stop the fight. And the fighting had already stopped, and he just sees Samuel Morris here in the middle of them praying, 
And so this was kind of his moment where he's like, there's something going on here that, you know, there's some kind of thing that I'm not understanding. And he grew less annoyed by the prayers. Gradually, um, Sammy won the captain's heart completely. At first, he had been annoyed by the prayers, but now he stood silently, cap in hand, um, and kind of listened while Sammy prayed. And under this new influence, the captain no longer paid his crew in rum. The fighting uh, ceased. The captain would call his crew to quarters for prayer. On such occasions, Sammy's strong voice and the songs he had learned while in Liberia played a great part in winning the goodwill of the crew. Captain and crew went off duty, would sit for hours and listen to him sing those beautiful songs. As Sammy would sing, voice after voice would catch up the melody of the chorus. And so over time, it's like this revival breaks down the ship and people are coming to understand um, who God is and coming to salvation. And so when they finally got to New York, you can imagine they weren't very happy to see Samuel Morris go, but Samuel Morris was on a quest. He knew he needed to find Stephen Merritt. So he said goodbye um, and went on his way into New York. Um, and the very first person he, he came to in New York, he comes up to me and says, where can I find Stephen Merritt? And the guy's like, well, I know where he lives. You, you know, I can take you to where he is. Um, now, bear in mind, this ship was docked about three miles from where Stephen Merritt lived. And he was relatively unknown in that district. Nobody really knew who Stephen Merritt was. Um, so had it not been for the guidance of the Holy Spirit um, and Sammy's faith, it might have been proved very difficult for him to even find Mr. Merritt. Again, like we're talking about, we're in New York City. So, you know, it's not like everybody knows everybody in New York. Um, but he found someone who could take him to Stephen Merritt. And uh, he came upon Stephen Merritt right at the end of his workday. So he was coming in as Stephen was leaving. And Samuel came to him and he said, I've come all the way from Africa to speak with you. And Stephen Merritt said, well, I actually have an appointment that I have to get to right now. So if you stay in this mission for a few hours, there's a mission next door. He said, stay here for a few hours. I'll come back and I'll get you after my appointment is finished. When he returned from his appointment to the mission, he found Samuel Morris surrounded by 17 men prostrate on their faces before him. He had just told them about Jesus and they were rejoicing in his pardon. On the first night in America, this young African who could spare, scarcely speak our language had brought nearly a score souls to Christ. So Merritt was very fascinated by this, this young boy. He took him home um, and kind of, you know, just kind of had him with him for, for several weeks. He would take him along with, ver with him on various tasks. Um, one in particular that was, I think, very impactful for Stephen Merritt, they were actually headed to a funeral with a couple other clergymen, in a stagecoach, and they were riding in the coach, um, and as they're riding, Stephen Merritt's telling Samuel Morris, showing him all the sights of New York, pointing out the, the great buildings. And uh, Samuel Morris kind of interrupts him, and he says, uh, did you ever pray while riding in a coach? And Merritt answered that he had frequently had blessed times while riding on a coach, but that he had never engaged in formal prayers. And Samuel said, we will pray. And they did, and he, and he said, Father, I have been many months coming to see Stephen Merritt so that I could talk to him about the Holy Ghost. Now that I am here, he shows me the harbor, the churches, the banks, and other buildings, but does not say a word about the Spirit I am so anxious to know more about. Fill him with thyself so that we will not, he will not think or talk or write or preach about anything but thee and the Holy Ghost. And there you get a little taste of Samuel Morris' subtlety. Um, very subtle about what he wants. No, very direct. He says, you know, I'm not interested in all this other stuff. I'm interested in learning more about God. And I think this was convicting to Stephen Merritt. It was convicting to me when I read it because a lot of times we have this idea that like, oh, we need to show them all this great technology we have, all this architecture, all the advancements we've had. Um, they're going to be so impressed by this. 
And Samuel Morse was, he may have been impressed by it, but that wasn't his goal. He wanted to learn more about God. Um, and it's important that we remember, remember that, that God needs to be the first thing on our mind oftentimes. So uh, Samuel, or Stephen Merritt began to teach Samuel Morris more and more. Uh, and as he was teaching him, he decided one time, I'm going to take him to Sunday school with me and, and teach and you know, introduce him to my, these kids at my Sunday school because they're going to really like him. So he introduced him, and after the introduction, Merritt was called from the platform to attend to another matter. And a moment later when he returned, you probably can guess that the altar was full of young people weeping and sobbing. Sammy was standing by the railing praying. They say it wasn't necessarily the exact words or manner that he spoke the words, but the presence of the Holy Ghost was so clearly felt that the place was filled with his glory. Um, so once again, revival in, in Stephen Merritt's Sunday school. So he continues to learn more. Uh, Merritt eventually sends him to Taylor University. He, he says, you know, I've taught you a lot. I think you'd benefit from going to college. He sent him to Taylor University, which was in, at the time in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now it's in Upland, Indiana. But over here in Indiana, uh, so that's how he got over here. Sent him to Taylor University to learn more. His first week in Taylor, at Taylor University, he asked, um, he, he asked them, you know, is there an African-American church here that I could go to? And they said, yeah, there is, just down the road. And so he went there on that Sunday. Uh, he came late, so the preacher was already up front preaching when he came. Um, I don't think he really understood the decorum of church because he came in through the doors, walked straight up to the pulpit, said, can I speak? I have something I want to say. And the preacher's like, I guess you can. And he spoke, he told his story. Um, and there was a great revival that happened there at that church. There was a lot of people turning to Christ and there was a lot of people with renewed passion after hearing Samuel Morris's story and how he had come to faith, and how now he's in Indiana. Um, and that was significant because by the end of that week, all of Fort Wayne knew about this new African student at Taylor University. Word had gotten out that, that he was here. Um, now, he was about 18 years old, but he had the education of a 7- or 8-year-old. Um, so they couldn't really enroll him in college classes, but they had a bunch of tutors kind of try to help get him up to the level where he could eventually go to college. He was a very diligent student. His sentences were very short, but every word in those sentences had meaning. Uh, often when he was solving math problems, he could be heard in a low voice whispering, help me, Lord, help me, um, which maybe you should, if you're a student, you should consider praying, help me, Lord. Um, they say that he spent more time talking to his father than to any earthly teacher. He began to be well-known throughout the whole nation. Uh, many came from a distance to see Samuel Morris and to talk to him, but he didn't have time for mere gossip. He, after he greeted them, he would hand them a Bible, and he would ask them to read aloud a, a chapter. And Sammy really wanted to read the entire Bible this way. And at one point, a strong, bold atheist came to him, uh, and he was prepared. You know, He had, knew all of the, the reasonings, the human wisdom to talk to this man, and he's like, I'm going to convince this uneducated African that he's wrong. Um, as usual, when he came in, Sammy handed him the open Bible and asked him to read a chapter, and the atheist threw the Bible down on the table and said, I do not read that book anymore. It is full of love affairs, wars, and a lot of big fish stories. I don't believe a word in it. Sammy had never heard of an atheist before. Even the African pagans had you know, believed in deities, so he sat and kind of eyed him down, um, sat there still, and then he arose to his feet and he said, my dear brother, your father speaks to you and you do not believe him? See, I, I think this is kind of interesting because he didn't have the concept of atheism, so in his mind, God was so real to him that he's like, it's not that you don't believe in God, it's just you're not listening to your father who is speaking to you. 
And then he said, we're going to pray. And so he prayed for the man. It may not surprise you that shortly thereafter, um, he did, that man did, was converted to Christianity and later became a bishop of a church. Um, so once again, some, you know, led this man to Christ. Uh, in general, Taylor University was full of some very sincere Christians, but also it was a period of very weakening of faith. There was growing worldliness among the church and among church colleges in general. And Samuel Morris's coming to Taylor University kind of revived them and, and pulled them away from the worldliness and pulled them into stronger faith, the, some of the weaker Christians. So another little aside here in, in Samuel's life. So Sammy really enjoyed walking outside in the fall, beautiful fall of Indiana. So here we are in Indiana. And I hear people complain about Indiana weather and things like that all the time. But Samuel didn't have much to complain about. The book says he loved to take walks in our woods, inhaling the odor of our wildflowers, listening to the enchanting songs of the robins and the meadowlarks and mockingbirds. When fall began to tint the leaves of the trees with many hues and colors, Sammy, accustomed only to the green of the tropics, beheld them with an ecstasy of joy. He would fairly shout his thanks to his heavenly father that his eyes had seen such wonders. He would often say, God is surely good to you folks in Indiana. So there you go. God's very good to us in Indiana. Yes. So, despite enjoying being here in Indiana as much as he did, he still yearned to return to his homeland and to share his newfound blessings with them. Unfortunately, he never got a chance to do so. Um, the winters came, and he'd never experienced snow before. Uh, he thought it, that was very beautiful, too. I mean, he enjoyed the snow very much. However, the tortures that Sammy had endured in Africa um, while serving as a pawn and the severe treatment that he had faced on that tramp ship had greatly weakened his frail constitution. He was not only not really used to the cold, long winters that we have here. Um, nevertheless, he continued to regularly attend church and religious meetings during a very exceptionally severe winter uh, in 1892 and 93. And during that winter, he caught a very severe cold uh, in, the months of in the month of January and while attending a church. He kept silent about it and bore the illness as if nothing were amiss. But eventually, people started noticing because the cold continued to get worse and worse. Uh, he started having some swelling. Eventually, he had to be hospitalized. And then um, shortly thereafter, he actually died um, from this severe cold, which is kind of tragic. After all he had gone through, uh, a severe cold was, was what, why he ended up dying. Um, he was 21 years old at his death. So, um, as we reflect on Sammy Morris and his life, um, one thing that I was, as I was reflecting on it, I really noticed that in his life we see the power of God. Samuel Morris was not well-versed in English. He had the education of a seven- or eight-year-old. He had no natural friendships or family ties to start his influence here in America. Um, he was a foreigner here in America, uh, he had to deal with prejudice and initial lack of respect. Remember, Samuel Morris died only 30 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So he's living in a very, very new slave-free America. Now, he was in the North, but even then, slave-free America um, for only 30 years. And so there was still a lot of prejudice with Samuel Morris. Despite all this, uh, think of how many times Samuel Morris went from no interest to people quickly bowing and crying and turning to God. Um, I'm hoping you noticed this. I, I mentioned several different occasions of this. Uh, so my question is kind of what, why was Samuel Morris able to be so used by God? Um, you know, sometimes we struggle when we're sharing the gospel. There's a, it's a, it can be a grind sometimes in getting people to realize um, who God is. Samuel Morris didn't seem to have that problem. 
And I don't know if there is really one answer. There's no one catch-all, like, if you do this, then you can be like Samuel Morris. Definitely not that way. But I do think there's one primary thing that we can look at in Samuel Morris's um, life. Samuel Morris was fully convinced of the power of God. So if you would turn your attention, or keep your attention with me for just a few minutes, um, I want to turn to this passage, Numbers chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers chapter 11. And I'm going to tie this in, but I kind of want to turn to this um, just to kind of, I think this is a great example of God's power and hopefully will give you a chance to recognize again how powerful God is. So in Numbers chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 4. So in this chapter, uh, Israel has already been freed from slavery in Egypt. That was a long time ago. Um, They also have already complained once about not having food, and God sent them manna um, when they complained the first time. Now Now they're complaining a second time because they want food. This time their taste buds are more refined, let's say. Um, and they have a new request of God. So we see in verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Um, And then we skip down to verse 10. So this is the Israelites are complaining, saying, We want meat. And then in verse 10, we see Moses' response. Moses heard the people weeping through their families, throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid this burden of all his people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. So we see a lot of complaining in this chapter. Um, Nowhere in Scripture do I think the old adage, the grass is always greener on the other side, apply than than right here. Um, First of all, the Israelites are completely misremembering their own history. In verse 5, they talk longingly about the food that they ate in Egypt. The outside observer can see the fallacy in this desire right away. Um, This is actually addressed rather succinctly in the VeggieTale classic, Josh and the Big Wall. Any VeggieTale fans out there? Uh, In Josh and the Big Wall, Paw Grape is waxing eloquently about how great they had it in Egypt. And one of the peas quickly interjects, we were in slavery. This is how he said it. You didn't know I had the impressions. I've been working on that one all week. That's what he says. He says, we were in slavery. And you hear that and you're like, yes, P, you're exactly right. They were in slaves in Egypt. Um, so why do they think it was so great in Egypt? They're misremembering their history. And then in the back half of this chapter, we see Moses responding like a parent who has been stretched very thin or like a camp reveal counselor near the end of the week. He just says, please just kill me. You know, death is better than dealing with all of these people. Which, of course, is a ridiculous statement. Um, What we're seeing here are these individuals have forgotten again, not only what God has done for them in the past, but what God is able to do for them in the future. He does not change. He's not a passive observer. He's in control. So what is God's response? Um, First, we see in verse 16 through 17, back in Numbers 11, we see 
First, he gives Moses a little help. And then to the Israelites in verse, um, so in 16, 17, he says, hey, Moses, get 70 people together. They're going to help you out with all the people. And then verse 18, he speaks to the Israelites and he says, uh, he tells Moses, say to these people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? So he says, you know, I've got it under control. You're going to get meat. Um, and yet, as we continue in this passage, verse 21, 22, we see Moses still feels like he needs to act. In 21, he says, Moses said, the people who I am among are 600,000 men on foot. And yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? See, once again, Moses is so introspective that he's not seeing what God is doing here. He still thinks he has to act, that he has to work, that he has to be the hand of God for these people. God has literally sent bread from the sky before, and yet Moses questions God's ability to feed the Israelites meat. Um, Luckily for us, we don't have to come to God's defense. God can defend himself. And in verse 23, he asks a rhetorical question that I think echoes into our times. Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. He asks, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Uh, Now, when we hear these stories, um, I think it's very important that we don't read these stories of the Israelites and Moses in the abstract. Uh, We see them and we think they were so foolish. Um, But I think we think this because we have the benefit of hindsight. I would ask you to genuinely reflect, reflect on this question. If someone were to read your life story in 3,000 years, where would they see the Israelites' attitudes in you? And I would encourage you to dwell on that question, not answer it very quickly. It's very easy to answer that question quickly. But let that question sit. You know, I don't believe that humankind has evolved to some state where we're of some religious state that we no longer have the same struggles that the Israelites do. I still think that we often struggle um, to remember that God is powerful, that God has power um, in terms of what he's done and what he can do for us in the future. In fact, I think this continues to be a real problem in the church today. I think that the church struggles with the same things that the Israelites struggled with. And this is not without cause. We're going through a lot right now. COVID, cultural unrest, politics, we've got an election in a couple days, issues amongst the brethren of our own church. The world throws its punches at us and then the nations look at us, as in Psalm 115.2, the nations look at us and say, where is your God? And far too often, our response is immediately with action. We need to show the nations God. We need to give. We need to serve God. We need to show God's love. We need to save God's reputation here amongst the nations. These are all very good thoughts, but this is not what the psalmist's response was to this question. In Psalm 115.2-3, It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? The psalmist responds, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. God's arm was not shortened for the Israelites. It's not shortened now. God does whatever pleases him. And this understanding of God's power was the key to Samuel Morris's success. Samuel Morris knew that God is at work. Um, Remember when he came to America, he came because he wanted to learn more about the Holy Spirit. 
I think that he was so captivated by the thought of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is proof that God still works today. He's not in the heavens looking down, but he is here amongst us working. Samuel Morse's life was marked by prayer. And it was just not this, you know, the cliche prayer. It wasn't merely, um, I would pray every morning. It's a great morning routine. It gets me off to a great start every day. It wasn't a prayer before the meals so that, okay, we can show family unification. We can teach our kids this is what you're supposed to do when you eat. And it wasn't just a prayer to merely put a nice conclusion to a, a meeting or to a talk um, just as a way of, of a, a segue. Samuel Morris prayed no matter where he was, whether it be in the dorms at the mission late at night in Monrovia, whether it be in front of a knife of a would-be assassin on the ship, or whether it be in the coach, he didn't care um, where he was, and he didn't care if there were others around. In fact, he would encourage others to join him in prayer. He clearly did not understand how culturally inappropriate his view on prayer was. The mantra, let us prayer, jumped off the pages multiple times throughout this biography. And I believe this unadulterated faith in God was contagious to those around him. They saw his faith in God And that's what drew them to the same God that he served. So what is Samuel Morris's legacy? Uh, Remember, he only lived to be 21 years old. Uh, And when we hear of deaths like Samuel Morris's, we often describe them as tragic. You know, such a young age, and especially after all that he went through to die of a common cold, you know, it's just tragic. Um, We'll say things like, what a waste. You know, he could have done so much. He died before his time. All these, these things that we would say about his death. But we know none of this is true. Um, yes, his death was, was very grievous, but it was not tragic. What would have been tragic would be him getting executed at the age of 15 in the jungles of Liberia, or dying from dehydration or wild animals while wandering in the jungles, dying in the open sea at the hand of murderous crewmates or hostile enemies or sweeping storm. God sustained him through all these dangerous situations, And we think it's tragic that Samuel never got to go back to Africa. His one goal was to go back to Africa and share with the people there. We think that's tragic. But what would have been tragic was him never finding Monrovia, him never finding a ship, him never finding Stephen Merritt. But God guided him to Taylor University to have the impact that he did on those students. The Lord does whatever pleases him. And God in his providence chose the time that Samuel Morris would die. Now, we cannot completely understand the mind of God. Um, but if we look at the aftermath of Samuel Morris's death, we can begin to see maybe a part of God's plan. At the first prayer meeting following his death, a young man stood up and said, I feel impressed this moment that I must go to Africa in Sammy's place. At once he was followed by two other volunteers. And this was just the beginning. The president of the college, Dr. Reed, said Samuel Morris was a divinely sent messenger of God to Taylor University. He thought he was coming over here to prepare himself for his mission to his people, but his coming was to prepare Taylor University for her mission to the whole world. Taylor got a vision of the world's need through him. It was no longer local, it was worldwide. Truly, Samuel Morris's words near his death to Dr. Reed were true. He was having a conversation with Dr. Reed, and he said, The light my Father in heaven sent to me, or sent to save me, when I was hanging helpless on that cross in America was for a purpose. I was saved for a purpose. Now I have fulfilled that purpose. My work here on earth has been finished. And then Dr. Reed looked at him and he said, well, what about this great work that you had planned for Africa? And Sammy responded to him. He said, it is not my work. It is Christ's work. He must choose his own workers. Others can do it better. Well, you know, this is such, what a great mindset to have for this, this um, young man. And uh, my question as we close up, 
going to give you guys some extra time here. Uh, my question as I close up here is, do you have that mindset? Do we truly believe that Christ is at work? Do we truly believe that he can choose his own workers? And do we truly believe that others can do it better? Um, I believe that when, when we begin to think like that, that is when Christ can begin to use us. So I'm going to close in prayer real quick, and then you'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this message. Thank you for this, this story that we can hear of this young man, Samuel Morris, um, such an impactful man that you use so greatly. And Lord, we know that you can choose whoever you want to use, and it's not the wisest that you choose, not the strongest that you choose, not the most eloquent that you choose all the time, but you can choose someone who maybe just knows short sentences, knows very little English, and you can use someone like that mightily. And Lord, I pray that we remember that, that we don't think that, you know, be lifted, lift ourselves up in pride and think that, oh, well, we're so great, God can really use us, but that we recognize that you're so great that you can use whoever you want. And Lord, I pray that you do use us, that you do use our hands to do your work. We pray that you, that would be your will for our lives. Thank you that we can learn today so much about your power. We know that you are powerful. We know that you can do whatever you want, that your arm is not shortened even today. Um, and Lord, I pray that we can live our lives recognizing that, that we can continually remind ourselves that even though things do look bad at times, we know that you work all things to good and we know that you are in control still. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we go out, as we continue our, our service today, as we hear from Bryce and we, we sing songs to you, Lord, I pray that you give us a worshipful mindset that we, we really are focusing on you, that you really hear our singing and that you are glorified in it. And I pray that you help us to really think, um, as Bryce preaches today, um, think well on what he has to say. We know that what he's going to say is going to be from your word and that we need to pay attention. Lord, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.